Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. As cases climb, so do the restrictions. More delays in the Moderna vaccine. Do Canadians want an election? Why are all the dump trucks stopped and protesting on the 400 series of highways? And I got the AstraZeneca jab. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. My dad got his AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine today. He really had no choice. My sister and I have bets on when his third hand will start to grow out of his forehead. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. What the heck is that? Where's the love there? Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Feeling fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. I'll close that window for you. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Yes, I forgot to post yesterday's uh, podcast edition of the commentary on Facebook and Twitter. So two of them are there for you today. Feel free. You can also send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, again, COVID-19 numbers uh, rising in Ontario, 4,800. Uh, sorry, 4,812 new cases today, 25 uh, deaths, uh, 25 families suffering the loss of a loved one. Here's Brianna Carnegie, Global News, talking about restrictions and modeling. Measures still being debated by Cabinet include limiting interprovincial travel, restrictions for non-essential retail, and enhancing police enforcement powers. Sources tell us a curfew is off the table for now, and construction could continue. But critics, including Dr. Peter Uni, who helps advise Ontario through its science table, has been calling for a full shutdown for months now. We can look back late to right now. We need to look forward and do the right thing. Sources tell other media that modelling to be released this afternoon shows Ontario could soon hit 18,000 daily COVID cases if new measures are not introduced. One of Ontario's top health officials, Dr. Barbara Yaffe, had this warning yesterday. It's bad. It's very bad. And we need to make it better. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, let's bring in Dr. Barry Pecos, public health and preventative medicine physician, professor with the Dalat Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Good afternoon. Obviously, you're concerned about uh, where the numbers are right now, as, as everyone else is. Uh, your thoughts, what needs to be done? What sort of restrictions should be put in place, do you think? Um, you know, what, what Dr. Yaffe, who you just quoted there, had suggested during her news conference is, um, you know, wh- when we look outside, we're seeing people around, people doing things. It doesn't look like it did last March when we went yeah. into full lockdown. And unfortunately, um, you know, back then we didn't know what was coming. Uh, and now we do know what was coming, but we have this variant of concern that's just dramatically increasing cases. So we need to do something that looks much more like what that looked like back initially. We don't want to do it, but but that is really the only solution. 
You know, I was having this discussion with my wife last night that, uh, you know, she said, here we go again, here we go again. And I said, well, you know, these lockdowns that we've been experiencing really isn't like the third wave. I remember walking outside the house during the first wave, the very beginning of all of this, and it was eerily quiet. You couldn't hear the highway noise in the distance, planes, any of that sort of thing. And now, I mean, everybody's commented, the highways are jammed and have been for weeks. So at the end of the day, uh, are people getting the message? Are they cooperating? How much more can we do if the public's not buying in? Well, no, I, I, I do think the public is buying in. And we actually have a lot of good evidence that people's mobility is down. And, and actually a far more, you know, a, a good majority of Ontarians actually think the restrictions should be stricter rather than less strict. So I don't think it's a matter of Ontarians not complying. Um, I think, you know, what the province has proposed until now and what we've called a shutdown and then we call the lockdown and whatever comes today is is just you know on paper the regulations and what we're being asked to do is just nowhere near as strict as it was back then the key difference is you have these essential workplaces which are incredibly important for us to all live our our normal lives and to get what we need from amazon and to keep construction going but those are the things that are getting people out of their houses and and um you know those uh marginalized or vulnerable folks do essential work um, are where a, a big portion of these of these cases are coming from. And we need to go back to the situation back then where everybody is at home. And, and you know, that's what an emergency break means. Uh, so, again, going back to, uh, so it seemed at the beginning of all of this, as you mentioned, uh, total shutdown, then slowly things would start to, to, to reopen. And it was almost sort of a shutdown or a lockdown with openings or curbside uh, pickup, this sort of thing. And, and as we mentioned, we, you know, still lots of traffic. But we have to literally bring everything to a halt. Construction sites, uh, uh, a- any sort of business that is non-essential. Is that what you're saying? More or less, you know, we 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 do don't have to be where we are now. You know, if we had listened, as as Dr. Juni, who you also uh, made a clip from, um, you know, the science table was predicting exactly what is happening now two months ago. So had we done a more robust lockdown then, we would not be where we are now. And 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 it's unfortunate because to most people, understandably, it makes no sense to just bluntly shut absolutely everything down. But unfortunately, all of those surgically precise kinds of things, whether it's restaurants or, you know, retail, particular venues, all those sort of narrow things that are focused on where the most risk is, we've exhausted those already. And so the only alternative we have left is to do this broad, you know, very unfortunate, absolute closure. I don't think that's what the province is really going to do, um, unfortunately, but, you know, we're going to probably see the results of it. But we will wait to see for the provincial announcement shortly this afternoon. Obviously, Doctor, new variants, the, the cause uh, of concern, great concern. Um, the majority of cases now are the new variants, British Columbia leading the way. Uh, they're, they're almost as bad as Ontario is and, and ahead of everybody as far as leading the way in the new variants and such. You were talking about, and many have said we should have done a long, you know, a hard lockdown, uh, long ago and just shut her down until, you know, we, we Australia this thing. Uh, that being said, the problem now is new variants, and they have come in from outside the province, outside the country, as airline travel has continued. So even if we had shut this thing down a few months ago and, and got the cases down dramatically lower, uh, if you've got variants coming in from other parts of the world, uh, it's going to fire back up again, is it not? Well, in some ways, but you know what, what you said is really important. If we would have gotten the cases dramatically lower... 
we would not be where we are now because, you know, with an exponential increase, it takes time to get that initial, you know, the, the, the virus to get that initial, you know, ground running and really to be exponential like it is now. So if we, 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 um, we locked down and then we started opening, we, it's not just we failed to, to lock down further. We, we had indoor dining in much of the province when we had about a thousand cases. If we'd have gotten down to two, three hundred cases, we would have that extra month right now where we'd be able to vaccinate a huge proportion more of our population. And, and while the variants would still be there, we would have a much greater proportion vaccinated and we wouldn't be seeing the dramatic increase we are now. You know, it, it is those small number of weeks that unfortunately would have made the difference. Uh, at the end of the day, lack of vaccine, the fact that we're seeing these different types of variants. Will we one day see a Canadian variant? Um, I'm not sure uh, about that. You know, you know, part of it is due to people's behavior and, and patterns of travel and interaction. And, and, um, and part of it is due to luck. You know, uh, we got SARS here in Toronto that most other places in the world are none really got and part of that was you know the, the our interaction with the rest of the world and and part of it was just unfortunate luck so we, we'll see how that goes um you know we are in a really bad place right now but you know thinking about that we are still not in anywhere near bad as bad a place as the u.s was for a good deal of this or as the uk and israel were as they were you know rolling out their incredibly successful vaccine programs they were also dealing with levels of the variant that were dramatically higher the difference in Ontario, though, is we have a lot lower hospital capacity to start with. And so that's why it's going to be a real challenge for us. Uh, will this ease uh, uh, the fact that people are seeing these numbers go up? Will this uh, ease the, the vaccine hesitancy? Will we see more and more uh, going in to get it? I just got my AstraZeneca uh, this morning. I'm, I'm talking with the pharmacist and such, and it's not busy. And it's amazing how many people are backing out of their appointments because they're just skeptical about this vaccination. And 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 there's lots of it available if anybody uh, wants that. Do you think these increasing numbers, these modeling uh, numbers that we're seeing, that that will, you know, change the messaging for people and make them realize, I got to get in there and get it. And again, if you're looking for the AZ and 55 plus, it's relatively easy to get. That's true. You know, I think that's definitely an element of it. I, you know, at this point, it is lack of vaccine and not vaccine confidence or vaccine hesitancy yeah. that's the problem now you're absolutely right we do have some astrazeneca vaccines sitting in freezers but you know part of the problem there is it's being distributed through pharmacies and through family doctors and and other methods like that that are low volume um and and what we we could be or should be doing is increasing vaccine confidence and having you know mass vaccination clinics with astrazeneca getting everybody who does want to get vaccinated vaccinated with that vaccine and then working on the confidence you know uh, over time uh, yeah, again, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's, uh, e- even though like your pharmacy might have a slow rollout, uh, I, from what I'm hearing, there's not a lot of people jumping at that bit. Uh, that being said, uh, obviously, as, as you mentioned, uh, vaccine and such, uh, we've seen uh, uh, the closure of a, a couple of clinics, a few clinics uh, last week as, uh, as uh, the situation with Moderna dried up. We're now hearing of another shortage of Moderna uh, in the future. Uh, your thoughts on how that will change uh, the rollout? Yeah, that is really unfortunate. And, and we've seen it just far too many times now. Um, you know, we have limited control over what is going on in a factory in Europe or a factory in, in the United States. And, in, you know, it, it really does 
you know, mess things up for lack of a better word is we, you know, we've got these clinics planned um, and, and they do take some degree of planning, even though we're, we're getting them going pretty darn quickly and we're having appointments for people and then there's no vaccine for them. So, you know, it's understandable the public being like, what on earth is going on? This vaccine clinic is open for three hours. If it was open 24 hours a day, we could get tons more. There just isn't the vaccine and we keep being promised more and more. And I'm hoping within the next couple of days, we will be seeing a lot more, but it is really disappointing that those, those shipments are going to be delayed. What is your message for those that are conscious of or, or, or cautious in regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine? No, absolutely. You know, I would you know, definitely get it myself if it were available to me. And, you know, the, the efficacy is a little bit lower than Pfizer and, and uh, Moderna. But the, the point here is not about your own, you know, personal efficacy, because if everybody gets vaccinated, there's less um, COVID in the population, you're less likely to get it, period. So it, it really is more about a communal rather than an individual decision. And, you know, that is hard for people to appreciate. That's not the kind of world we actually live in. But I would reassure people that the, you know, whatever potential uh, effects there are, are, you know, of the one in a couple million, one in a couple hundred thousand variety. And, and there are certain groups, those are more common in. And, and in fact, we're not really vaccinating people with AstraZeneca in those groups. So if you are eligible, absolutely go out and get it, as many people, you know, such as yourself have done. Do you think they'll lower the age, Health Canada, of this? Uh, I, I think they will eventually. We're still looking, you know, it is still early. So there is still a lot of data that we're looking at. And, and uh, with the Johnson Johnson vaccine, it's a similar sort of thing. Um, I am hoping within the next couple of weeks, we will uh, lower that age limit or at least lower it in such a way that people can get it if they want it. But, you know, there, there are a lot of players and a lot of factors involved, not only in Ontario, in Canada, but internationally that are going to impact that. Uh, if Pfizer coming out uh, recently saying that uh, a booster, an extra shot will be needed, any surprise there? Uh, no, I mean, that's the sort of thing, obviously, you'd expect the drug company who's making something to come up with. But I think they are, you know, probably right. Um, you know, we in Ontario and most parts of the world are just laser focused right now on getting one dose into people's arms to prevent hospitalization and death. And, and the, you know, the, the need to get that third dose or even that second dose to prevent infection to begin with, really, really important, but, you know, it's going to have to wait a little bit. Uh, I'm obviously asking you questions perhaps that you can't answer, but will this, do you think that with these vaccines and such that it'll be, you know, something like a measles or a whatever, you get it once and that's it, or do you think it'll be more like a flu shot where you'll need an update every year or so? Yeah, that is a really important, you know, discussion to be had, uh, maybe not now, but in the future, but, it, you know, I, I think, um, it isn't. It is not like a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, where it is an exceptionally effective vaccine. It is a live vaccine, and we know that those viruses don't change a lot. Coronaviruses, you know, even before this pandemic, we know that they change a lot. It's associated with sort of the normal common cold that we get very frequently because those things do change. So, you know, it's not clear right now. Um, I, I even if we need it on an annual basis, uh, you know, we're all certainly hoping. We're not going to need it to prevent a pandemic, but just need it to stay healthy generally. So whatever it is, it's going to look very different than it is now, but it is certainly a possibility. Dr. Barry Pegas has been with us, public health and preventative medicine physician, professor with the Dalla Lana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well, and thanks for all you are doing and uh, those in your uh, vocation. Much appreciated. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Today I get my AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine shot. 
By this time Monday, I'll be able to tell you if my head has exploded or not. I qualify for the AstraZeneca shot because I'm over 55 and no one else seems to want it. Here's what world-famous Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who you see on TV, tweeted about the left's vaccines in the freezer conspiracy theory and AstraZeneca. The tweet. So what is the deal with so many in the freezer? Quote, well, at the beginning of the week, there is plenty of Pfizer Moderna, but that quickly gets administered. We then wait for the next shipment. There is two-day supply for wiggle room if there are supply chain issues. Next tweet. What's left in the freezer? AstraZeneca. A lot of it. It's not exactly flying off the shelves for the 55-plus crowd, unfortunately. Next tweet. Even with 1,400 pharmacies and public health units administering AstraZeneca, it moves slowly, in capital letters, in many areas. End of tweets from the world-famous Dr. Isaac Bogosh. The reality is, with not enough COVID-19 vaccine coming into Canada in a timely fashion, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has left me and you no choice. I'm Scott Thompson. All right. Uh, coming up a little later on, 2.30 this afternoon, a news conference with uh, Premier Doug Ford, and we will take it live. Let's bring in ta- Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He's with us now. Travis, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. I'm very good. Thanks. How are you doing? Lots of I'm not too bad. going on again on a Friday. Eh? <laughs> I know. It's day. bizarre. So I, what can you tell us? What are your secret sources telling, that, uh, telling you that we'll hear later on? Um, so listen, they're still in cabinet right now. They were in cabinet until about nine o'clock last night. So they were in there for several hours, and it feels like we're going through this every Friday, right? Where we see more restrictions coming out. And I just uh, got. I'm looking at my email as we're talking. We just got the modeling data, um, which is going to be released officially in about 20 minutes at one o'clock. And uh, that data is apparently shocking. It shows. Uh, 12 to 18,000 cases uh, in the worst case scenario that we could see in Ontario on a daily basis. And so they have to put into place uh, additional restrictions. What are those additional restrictions going to be? Well, that's the big question right now. We're hearing, you know, that there was talk about a curfew. Uh, now I'm hearing from my sources that that's off the table. Construction as well being limited. I'm hearing that's off the table again. Um, provincial travel restrictions between Quebec and Ontario. That is something that they are still looking at and discussing how logistically that would work. And they're talking to uh, the province of Quebec uh, and officials in Francois Legault's office about about that. Uh, We're also going to see likely enforcement increase when it comes to the existing rules as well. And there could also be tightening of uh, non-essential retail curbside pickup. We remember, and we've been t- discussing this uh, for the last several weeks. Uh, the, the beginning of this uh, uh, of this pandemic, the first wave. You go outside; it was eerily silent. You, silent. You couldn't hear traffic in the distance. You couldn't see hear or see jets or anything flying around. Now it's like everyday life. Are we going to go back to? Do you think what we were experiencing in the first wave, where it's just eerily quiet? Well, we'll see. I mean, part of the problem here is that the messaging has been so muddy and the communication so confusing that people are, you know, trying to keep up, right? Yeah. And they don't know from day to day what has changed, what they're allowed to do, what are they not allowed to do. Okay, I can go play golf, but there's a stay-at-home order. I can go down the street to get some ice cream, but there's a stay-at-home order in place. Like, 
it, it just keeps changing. And for somebody, you know, like myself, who's been covering it for over a year now, it's confusing to me. I can't imagine for somebody watching this from the sidelines what it's like to, to, to keep up. So that's what they're battling as well. And frankly, that is a self-inflicted wound because they're, they're, they have not been clear and concise about it. As much as they would like to, to say that they have been, everything changes every Friday, right? I mean, emergency yeah. break, stay-at-home order, now we're going to see other restrictions. And it, it, it is very difficult to follow the bouncing ball here, and that creates a lot of people just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, what I'm not supposed to do. And that's a problem. We're hearing more uh, that the Red Cross are going to be involved. Uh, any more on that and, and in what role they will be used? Well, so, yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, as we speak, I'm seeing uh, an email from our uh, chief political correspondent, David Aiken. So I'll give you this uh, breaking news. Uh, while we appreciate the Prime Minister's offer, unless it is matched with an increase in supply, we do not need the Red Cross at this time for the administration of vaccines in Ontario. We do not have a capacity issue. We have a supply issue. And that is from Ivana Yelich, Press Secretary to Premier Ford. So there was a lot of talk about whether or not uh, Ontario had sent a draft request letter to Bill Blair's office last night for additional uh, critical care workers. Uh, there seemed to be uh, a lot of politicking around that. I mean, the province was saying, no, 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 we didn't ask for help. The Bill Blair's office was saying, yes, we did receive some sort of draft letter. And now it seems as though uh, right now, uh, right now, the, the premier's office is saying, no, we don't need the help. Um, so, I mean, that's the situation. But at, at capacity in hospitals right now is at a high, right? ICU capacity. Um, we are we are hitting highs again, and daily case numbers are hitting at highs. So, at what point do you have to ask for help, right? So, uh, with the Red and, Cross, and, Travis, would the Red Cross be used in administering vaccine? And again, I mean, if we don't have enough vaccine to keep clinics open, we don't need more people to to serve it. But if a if a mass vaccination dump comes in, you can certainly see where that would be necessary. Is the Red Cross able to go in and help healthcare at all? And, and that's and that's the thing that we were hearing last night. Yeah, for six hundred critical care workers. The other thing that I'm just about learning uh, from our Alberta bureau in Edmonton, and I can uh, let you know this as well, which is what we were hearing last night, is that uh, Ontario did make a request to Premier Kenny's office for additional help. And I have a statement uh, from Tom Vernon, who's our bureau chief out in Edmonton at the legislature. There, uh, this is from the office of Premier Kenny. Uh, with COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations on a sharp rise in Alberta, we are simply not in a position to send our health care workers outside the province at this time. Yeah. Our priority must be uh, the health and safety of Albertans. So, uh, I, I, I mean, everybody is kind of, you know, uh, hunkering down in their own province right now and, and, and trying to deal with their own situation. And Ontario does have a lack of, of workers right now. That, that's part of the problem because we are seeing so many people go in the hospital. Uh, any more word, uh, Travis, on um, we've heard other parts of the country, like, for example, the Atlantic bubble, who have, uh, again, now sealed themselves off, that some of the doses of vaccine that were designated for areas that, that uh, aren't having any issues, those coming back into or those going to southern Ontario. Any more on that? No, there's no more details on that. We might be getting some of those details today at two, the 2.30 news conference, which I'm now hearing is going to be at 3 o'clock from the Premier. Um, but, I mean, certainly 
you know, uh, the vaccines, we do need more. I mean, Moderna has been a big problem. And, and really, how do we get ahead of this? Well, you know, Gene uh, is somewhat out of the bottle when it comes to the variant. There's rapid spread right now. And getting people vaccinated is critical. It is, it is the number one thing that we need to do right now, along with folks adhering to the public health measures and these additional restrictions that are put into place. Uh, but there are a lot of challenges around that. And, and, and if they can move some vaccine around the province, uh, that may be something that they look at doing, but that also creates a lot of logistical issues. And, yeah. and you know, there have been a lot of logistical issues to begin with as it is. Travis Danraj with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, uh, literally giving us uh, news as it's happening in front of them. Uh, and one thing you did mention there, Travis, which is new to us that we're planning for, and that's the Premier's News Conference now bumped back to three. I am hearing that that likely is going to be the case. I mean, they're in cabinet still, and there's still a lot of things that they need to, you know, cross their T's and dot their I's. So likely, as we have seen in the past, this news conference is going to be bumped by about a half hour or so. That's what I'm hearing right now. All right, thanks for that, because now i got another half hour to plan for. Uh, Travis, thanks go. so much. Be well. Cheers, Scott. You too. Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. All right, uh, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and is with us now talking about the conservative climate change plan, which they revealed yesterday. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing okay, Scott. So uh, what was your thought on the Conservatives' uh, climate change plan? Uh, What I loved more than anything was uh, all the beautiful nature shots that we saw going on behind Aaron (laughs) O'Toole's head. I thought that was quite liberal. Well, as long as there wasn't a a naked liberal MP, that would have been running through through the weeds. Come on, Scott, you gave me that one. So I know. to the plan, to the plan. Now, the Conservatives bared it all, didn't they? Oh, I can't stop. Um, look, I, I think symbolically it's important that we get into the mechanics in a moment. Um, O'Toole now has gone where no conservative, federal conservative leader has gone uh, probably since Brian Mulroney embraced environmental policy, but... Uh, O'Toole is now acknowledging that, at least under his leadership, a Conservative Party does recognize that consumers do have to uh, have a role to play in fighting greenhouse gas emissions, and that they should be uh, there. There should be some price on their activity. Uh, now, uh, what he's constructed, I don't know how it will work or not work. This savings account kind of thing, but the symbolism should not be lost. Now, all major parties in uh, in Ottawa do acknowledge that you have to have uh, consumer-based carbon pricing. Um, it's, it, uh, you know, when you when you go back and, and think of all of the other climate plans, whether it's carbon tax, whether it's cap and trade, man, Tim, it was impossible for me to try to understand this. And then when he started talking, I thought, oh, my goodness, here we go. But within 10 minutes, I think I got it. Um, do you think people will understand this? Because basically what he's doing is there still is the price of carbon, uh, but he calls it not a tax because it does not go to government. It goes back to you, very much like a TFSA or an RSP account or something like that. So to me, I think that's going to resonate because the money is going to me and then I have to use it for green initiatives. Well, and that's what he hopes is going to be successful. I've heard all manner of interpretation of it today. So what that tells me 
is other than you, of course, being a savant and you getting it right away, is that he still has a lot more explaining to do as to how the uh, the, the savings account that he set out, which, as he described it, as O'Toole described it, would uh, be uh, up to your determination as to how you utilized uh, utilized the money that was put in there. Um, he, he's got a lot of work to do on all of that, but I think he's probably okay with that, Scott, um, because he, he will now be explaining more ways in which he can get you money while at the same time saying he is doing something substantive or trying to do something substantive uh, to re- reduce greenhouse gases. Look, I, I think other than partisans, people who work in the greenhouse gas space who have been so frustrated with conservatives for so long because they have not acknowledged the role that consumer pricing needs to pay, now at least can say, hey, uh, they might like the way O'Toole is doing it, but they can say at least he's now trying to do something for it. So, and those are some of the people O'Toole's hoping to have comment positively so they can move voters for him uh, into uh, consider conservative category. Uh, the liberals' response was, the more you burn, the more you earn. Well, boy, that's a catchy phrase, isn't it, Tim? But that would be the same with air tax. The only difference is what I'm earning is going into their pocket as opposed to going into my pocket to purchase green things with. Well, they give you a rebate, yes, but it does go back to the government of Canada first for redistribution, and I think 10% of it is kept to deal, uh, or 10% is dispersed as the government sees fit to, to other areas of greenhouse gas uh, reduction. So, and again, this is where O'Toole is going to try and, and draw the line uh, and say, look, um, we are both addressing carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but I'm giving you the opportunity to do it. I'm not saying to the government and giving, I think the line he used yesterday was, you know, I'm not creating a, uh, or I'm paraphrasing, I'm not creating the opportunity for the prime minister to reach in and take billions of dollars of your money and spend it in things that matter to him. You get to do that yourself under my plan, or at least that's what he's going to try and argue. I think that's going to resonate, Tim. I really do, because, again, everyone's always confused as to where the heck all this money goes. At least now you can see it. For example, you're buying your vehicle. You're paying a lot in carbon tax, whatever. It goes into your account. Five years from now, you want to buy an electric vehicle. you got a nice piece of change there to put towards it. Yeah, I mean, I think your example is a good one. If if people understand what a TFSA is, and uh, again, created by conservatives, created by Jim Flaherty in the day, and this is a version of a TFSA, uh, then that potentially can be a very useful political tool and personal account uh, for uh, for people. Uh, O'Toole, though, is just going to have to continue to drive the message and explain what it is, while at the same time recognizing he's going to get fire uh, from sources internally. The Taxpayers Federation, of course, have come after him. I suspect we'll hear a few MPs as time goes on saying this isn't what they believed. But uh, if Aaron O'Toole wants to win the next election, he has to take political risks. And uh, I wouldn't consider it a political risk. I considered it a political must-do. But for some he has taken a risk by saying, you know what, carbon pricing, putting a price on carbon is real, and we have to do that in the Conservative Party if we form government. 
Obviously, liberals uh, certainly aren't going to like it. But as you mentioned, a lot of conservatives don't like this. Does that mean he's hit the nail on the head? Probably. That's usually the sign you got it right when everybody's angry at you. Um, yeah, you're doing it right. Uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, there are people who are going to be irritated by it. But, you know, nobody likes to have to pay more than they do. But, uh, uh, again, he's acknowledging a, a worldwide uh, current for the most part. There are some who are still outside the current or run against the current that uh, consumer pricing of carbon has to happen. Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Canada has now signed an agreement with Pfizer for 8 million more doses of the vaccine. This is on top of what we have already purchased. With the New Deal, Canada will receive 4 million additional Pfizer doses in May, another 2 million in June, and 2 million more in July. For next month alone, this will come out to about double the Pfizer doses we were originally expecting. Man, that's amazing. I just have this one question. I thought we have already purchased more vaccine per capita than any other country in the world. Some have accused us of hoarding it as we take stuff from COVAX. So if we have enough vaccine in the portfolio to vaccinate Canadians five times over, why are we buying another 8 million doses of Pfizer? Do we not already have enough? Is the portfolio not already big enough? Do we need to buy more to come in in June and July? Or do we just need to get in what we've already bought? Or are we trying to get six times or seven times our population in vaccines? So, again, um, this news comes out on the same day that it's announced that Moderna shipments have been reduced uh, going to get 650,000 doses as opposed to the 1.2 million doses we were supposed to get at the end of the month. That ain't going to happen. So the same day that it's announced that we're not getting uh, or that the 1 million doses, 1.2 million doses of, uh, of Moderna will be cut in half at the end of April. Do you think it's a coincidence that the prime minister has is, is, is just added, I bought 8 million more? Well, how many do we need? We already have five times our population. What we need is them on the doorstep. We don't need to buy more. We need to have what we've already purchased delivered. How will buying more speed up delivery? Or does it? Because you're paying more. Or are we desperate because... Johnson & Johnson doesn't look good. People certainly aren't interested in AstraZeneca. I, just, I found that out from the pharmacist as I went today to get my shot. Please do that. Um, so, you know, what? Half the portfolio is not working, so we have to inflate the other part of it? But again, if we have more doses than anybody and a giant portfolio, why are we making it bigger? I don't understand that. 
All right, let's move on uh, and talk about elections. We know that uh, the Liberals are gunning for a uh, election. They want to uh, to secure a majority government. However, nobody wants to be the one that calls it or uh, triggers it. And you have to wonder whether Canadians uh, are even considering that right now. And if you were to call an election before all of us have been vaccinated and all of this is over, is that going to blow back in your face? Uh, let's talk more about this with Dave Schultz, Executive Vice President of Leger, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well also. Lots of chatter over the last several months about an election. Uh, we remember way back between the first and second wave, uh, the government actually uh, came out with a, uh, not a budget, but certain, uh, certainly an economic statement, and that didn't happen. The second wave came up pretty quick and sort of shut that window. When is a good time to actually have an election? Well, if you talk to Canadians... Uh, you know, we asked them, would you prefer an election, regardless of what is in the budget? Because a lot of the circles around the new budget coming up, and is it going to be defeated or not? Um, if, if it was that we had led to an election, only 14% of Canadians want an election this spring. Only 29% say this fall. And 43% say, let's push it out even later. So the general sense is Canadians do not want an election right now. Let's Let's get through this and keep going. And you talk about, our, you know, do the Liberals want to push for an election to get a majority government. They're at 35% decided voters compared to 30% for the Conservatives and 18% for the NDP. They're still in that minority territory that they've been in for a long, long time. We keep hearing every so often that, you know, oh, they're in majority territory again. Or is that just too close to call? I think right now it's too close to call. I think a, uh, uh, you know, they may feel that they're they, they're ahead. They're certainly ahead, and uh, the Conservative Party has been going up and down depending on the week, whether they gain or lose points. And uh, this most recent poll over the last uh, two weeks, the NDP have lost four points, and those votes aren't necessarily going to go to the Conservatives. So I think they might be feeling pretty good, but the numbers still say uh, they haven't jumped ahead significantly since the last election. Can anybody be surprised that Canadians don't want an election until this is well behind us? I, well, Canadians certainly are surprised by that. I mean, we're, we're certainly concerned about where we're going, but uh, we are, we're still concerned about getting the, the, the COVID. We're only about 25%, according to our poll, say that they've uh, registered or received the vaccine. So we haven't really turned the corner on on COVID yet. So until that happens, I I don't think anyone should be surprised that Canadians aren't ready for an election. How aware are Canadians that there's a budget coming down on the 19th? What do we want from that? Well, we didn't ask, are you aware of it? But we did ask, what would you like to see in the budget on the 19th? And uh, just over a third of Canadians feel we should have tax reductions to help lower and middle income Canadians. Uh, 25% are looking for increased spending on programs to help us because of the pandemic. Uh, and 17% are looking at, uh, you know, finding ways to reduce the deficit. Uh, our deficit is at the highest it has ever been in the uh, history of this country. I believe it's at just, just uh, 3.8, 380 billion, so 3.3 trillion right now. 
And 71% of Canadians are very concerned about that deficit size. How are our feelings different now? Uh, post, I don't say post, we're not over it yet, but in the, in the middle are coming towards the end of a pandemic as opposed to when one did not exist. Are there, is there anything that's standing out, uh, in this set of numbers that you may not have seen in the past? Well, I, we always had a bit of a concern for the deficit. We've never seen numbers at this level in terms of a concern for that. Uh, and I, and I think that's going to be the big priority looking at this further on. The idea of tax reductions for lower and middle class Canadians, we've always seen that, but it seems to have taken a higher priority now because there are a lot of Canadians that are, and especially as we've continued with our lockdowns, there are a lot of Canadians who are suffering and will continue to suffer economically. Uh, yesterday, uh, the um, leader of the opposition, conservative uh, leader Aaron O'Toole, announced his climate change plan for their party. Do you see that changing any of these numbers in the next little while? Well, when you look at Canadians and you talk about um, you know shifting Canada's economy away from fossil fuels and, and looking at sustainable economic practices, 68% of Canadians agree that that is the direction we need to go. So Aaron O'Toole starting to talk about carbon tax and about targeting about renewable um, or sustainable economic practices only makes sense because it's what Canadians want him to be talking about or want overall to be talking about. Regionally, we still have some discrepancies. For example, ever across the entire country, more than half agree that it's an important area, except in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where it drops down to 47%. But uh, Quebec's at 79%. In Ontario, we are here, 68% of Ontarians think it's, which is right on the national average, think it's something that real government should really be not just talking about, but actually doing. Uh, how will climate change factor into the next election? Will it be the top priority? Is it the top priority for Canadians? Um. I, I wish we asked that question <laughs> on this one. I'm sure we will coming up, but uh, we have not asked. Right now, when we look at priorities for the budget, I think the fact that we're talking about um, ways to help out Canadians, we're still looking to spend money to get Canadians out of this, regardless of what happens, regardless of how sustainable it is. It'll be an important discussion in the next election, but economic recovery will also be an important discussion. All right, Dave Schultz with us, Executive Vice President of Leger. And man, it's a fascinating time to be in this business because everything seems to change quite quickly. Uh, Dave, (laughs) thanks for the time. Be well, and uh, we look forward to the next edition. All right, thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, If you've been driving around the 400 series of highways at all the last couple of days, you have noticed that there are lots of dump trucks out there snarling traffic and protesting. Uh, What is it all about? What is is the message here? Let's bring in Sarbjeet Kaur, spokesperson for Don't Dump on Us, and is with us now. Sarbjeet, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. We're good. Thank you so much for having me on. So we've slowly seen uh, these protests grow over the last couple of days. Uh, What's the message here? Yeah, we're really just asking the government to get rid of some red tape that uh, came into effect a long time ago and has been kind of a thorn in the side of uh, dump truck owners. It's a relatively easy to fix problem so that these dump trucks 
that are older than 15 years can continue to operate without expensive retrofits that cost $20,000 and up. So we're just looking for the older trucks to be grandfathered, just like cement trucks and fuel trucks were. And uh, so then they can carry on and use their truck for its natural lifespan. And eventually these trucks will get cycled out in the newer trucks that have this axle that reduces road wear and tear a little bit better will be, you know, in commission. So this is about a specific part, a specific service that has to be done. Yeah, there's an axle that was introduced uh, only for construction trucks that carry heavy loads. The axle is designed to distribute the weight of the soil or the gravel or whatever load the truck is carrying a little more evenly, which prevents long-term road wear and tear. So I just want to be clear, it's not about human safety. It's not about, you know, uh, wheels or parts flying off. It's about protecting roads and infrastructure, which is very worthwhile. But we don't feel that that is enough reason to be putting people out of work, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Sarbjeet, so just to make clear uh, all of this clear and repeat just what you exactly just said, this is an issue uh, that has to do with a mechanical uh, part of the truck, the axle, obviously, between the two wheels, and is, is is something that is designed to more evenly distribute the weight. This is not a case of safety or wheels flying off of trucks or something that needs to be done uh, every so many years. Not at all. I mean, these trucks are regularly inspected. There's a you know, they're on the road now, 15 years, they can go up to 15 years. And the axles are the same axles in use in other trucks that have been grandfathered for 20 to 25 years. So this was all designed to, you know, protect just like cars over time would create potholes. You've got road truck traffic that over time can be heavy on the roads. And just also to put into context, dump trucks are less than 1% of all large truck traffic. And of those, there's about 2,000 that have the old axle. So even the impact that they would have on road wear and tear is really a drop in the bucket. When did this all come into effect? Oh, well, uh, you know, the regulations were designed in the 90s. Then they rolled out in four phases from uh, the last phase ending in 2011. And uh, then in 2016, there was concerns about this. And the then transportation minister agreed to put the program under review and work with the industry towards collaborative solutions. Unfortunately, that never happened. And then uh, January uh, 1st, 2021 is when they decided to enforce. And people did not get any kind of notice. You know, they didn't get any direct notice. There was no announcement, no engagement with the industry associations, the ones that uh, I'm representing And the ministry has acknowledged this, and they've acknowledged that there was no formal notice, direct or indirect, to the industry. And so a lot of people were very much caught off guard and scrambling because they don't have the axles and they don't have twenty or $30,000 to go and put into their truck in the middle of a pandemic just to get, you know, a little more life out of it. Because now these are trucks already are 15 years old. They can go up to maybe 25 if they grandfather them. And you're asking someone to put 20, 30, maybe more into it just to comply. Uh, And the newer trucks already have this installed? Yes, they started having them just like airbags once they became mandatory. Every car Mm -hmm. had them around 2011. But in 2012, you could still buy a truck with the old axle. Um, So eventually, they're all going to get cycled out. You know, you've got some trucks that we estimate about. 2,000, so there's uh, th- that will be impacted because 1,200 trucks had to apply for a permit because they're just to get to 15 years, so they're going to be in the same boat in five years when they hit 15 years or however many years away they are from being 15. And when we have about 1,000 trucks who are already 15 years old, 
So if you add that up, that's about 2,000, maybe more than 2,000 trucks in a small industry that's only maybe 5,000 trucks total across the province. So, you know, you're going to look at construction delays, labor shortages, higher costs. Most of those costs will be passed on to uh, taxpayers because these are the guys who build the infrastructure for roads, bridges, hospitals, homes. And the government and the MTO, ironically, is the one who pays. So does this just uh, involve dump trucks? Does this involve other vehicles at all, at all, Sarbjeet? Only the dump trucks were not grandfathered. So four types of trucks in the construction industry had to get this new axle. The cement trucks, the fuel trucks, the water trucks, they all got grandfathered for 20 to 25 years, which is closer to the correct lifespan. The cement, uh, the dump trucks got 15 years. And it's just an unfortunate error that was made when they developed this at the onset. They didn't calculate the lifespan correctly. And, you know, experts have come forward. The former head of the Canadian Transportation Equipment Association, who was very much leading this whole transformation, he felt compelled to write a letter when he saw the protest saying, we made a mistake. I am familiar with this process. We didn't consult with the industry. And now people are paying for it. And we shouldn't be letting words on a piece of paper or legislation from decades ago put perfectly good trucks and hardworking people who drive them out of business. And, uh, you know, that letter was really captured everything perfectly. It's on our website, don'tdumponus.ca. And, uh, you know, this is a person with a lot of credibility who was there, an expert, and it's just common sense. And we think it's time for, for the government to fix this problem once and for all. Uh, interesting note from a caller here uh, in the construction industry saying that some bought old trucks knowing they would become obsolete. Is there an ownership issue here? Oh, well, there's definitely people who bought used trucks. Like just with the car industry, there's a whole resale yeah. industry. I don't believe that they knowingly bought the truck. Unfortunately, they were able to purchase these trucks when they purchased them. No one at the MTO who issues the license or the ownership warned them that, uh, you know, by the way, you're going to have to be compliant. And so yeah. you do have a whole sector of people who bought a truck. Not every These are $250,000, $300,000 trucks you buy new, yeah. right? And now those poor people are caught, too, with a truck that they thought they were going to be able to have a little business out of. And this is an industry that most people are independent owner-operators, just a man with a truck or a man with two or three trucks. And if you do have three trucks, you're looking at 20000 or 30000 times three. So it's huge costs. So where do you see this going, Sarbjeet? I mean, is it getting attention? Or, as you mentioned, some are admitting there was a mistake made here. Where do you see this going? You know, we're really hoping that common sense will prevail here. You know, Doug Ford, he's busy managing the pandemic, so we understand this is, you know, not a priority necessarily. Mm. But we're really appealing to him because we think that he gets it. He is a person who was elected on being for the people, supporting small business, And, uh, you know, we're really appealing to him directly at this point to intervene and help people and solve this problem once and for all, because the truckers really do um, respect Premier Ford. A lot of them voted for him. And at this point, he's kind of their only hope. And the website once again is? Uh, Don'tdumponus.ca. And more protests planned throughout the next coming days? You know, we did a week uh, of peaceful protest this week. We were at the MTO scales, uh, and then we did our rally, which was the largest such rally uh, in history of Ontario, as far as we know. 
And if we don't come to a solution and we keep telling the government we're ready to talk anytime, we are uh, very open to collaborating and coming to solutions, but we will not give up. We will continue to try to get our message out, educate people about what's going on. And, uh, you know, we're just building momentum. And that was our point to show that this isn't a small group of people who are impacted. We saw with our rally 1,200 trucks coming out. That's just in the GTA. And we have people impacted in any construction-heavy sector Windsor, Ottawa, Caledon, and, uh, you know, we just want to show the government this isn't a small handful of people who are rule breakers or lazy. This is an entire industry being impacted, and they need help. Sarbjeet Kaur has been with us and spokesperson for Don't Dump on Us. You can check out the website protesting uh, in regard to regulations involving axles and nothing safety, but relate, uh, relating to uh, the uh, the wear that it uh, it poses on roads. Sarbjeet, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. The point is now we just need to be very smart with distinguishing, but really distinguishing now between what is essential and what is not essential. I'm sorry to say a construction place out there that is not just directly related to a hospital is not essential, period. So it needs to be closed, period. It's as simple as that. Uh, that's Dr. Uni from the Ontario Health Table. Uh, chatter about construction sites, although... Uh, it does not look like, uh, from what we're hearing uh, so far, and again, this is all speculation, but it doesn't look like at this point that uh, the Premier is going to touch uh, construction sites. Um, and uh, whatever the announcement is coming up uh, was going to be at 2.30. Now it's been bumped back to 3, we understand. We're trying to get clarification on all of that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it appears that they will not be closed, but that's the information now. That could change by uh, later on this afternoon. Let's bring in Andrew Pariser. Uh, Andrew is the Vice President of the Residential Construction Council of Ontario and with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you for having me. So any more word on this? Uh, there was chatter that this was on the table. Now we're hearing it's not. Have you got any inside information here? Uh, I've never been one that's enjoyed speculation, um, and I guess, you know, if anyone's going to speculate, today would be the day. Um, I, I guess the only thing that I think about is this is the third wave, and so construction has been able to operate in the previous waves. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe that's a predictor that we can look at going forward, um, but I'm in the same boat as everybody else in Ontario. Um, I'm waiting for that announcement. Uh, are construction sites safe? Have they been a, a source of major outbreak? Yeah, so I think the smartest thing to do is, with all the speculation, I think we need to go right to the facts. And so, to be honest, I'm sitting in front of my computer and I have the WSIB website in front of me. And, and for everyone who is listening in, um, WSIB is, is literally the group that tracks workplace injuries. And so the statistics that jump out at me right now is, there's been 20,504 um, approved uh, cases of COVID um, from workplace spread in the province, and 253 of them have been in construction, which is just a little bit more than 1%. Um, so statistically, yes, construction is safe. Um, and, and speaking, uh, I chair the ResCon Health and Safety Committee. Um, we have been tirelessly focused on keeping construction safe um, you know, since even before the pandemic was declared, um, because early signs showed that COVID was serious, and, and it was serious. So, um, yes, construction is safe, especially when uh, we, we follow our best practices and rules. 
the uh, looking at a, uh, a headline right now in in uh, today's Toronto Star. Construction sites have been a major source of COVID nineteen outbreaks. So why are they not part of Doug Ford's stay at home order? What are your thoughts? Yeah, and and thank you for asking that question. Um, I read that article, and uh, I I think we just have to stick to the facts. And so. Toronto Public Health, the way they categorize construction, it's included in other sectors. And so in that report, I think they use the number 600. Um, When you look at the WSIB data, which breaks out construction as its own sector, the number is 253. And so construction has done relatively better than other sectors. In Toronto, through the public health, and I'm not faulting anyone, um, we are combined with groups like warehousing, um, and, and, you know, they need to organize the data how, how they see fit. But uh, in my eyes, construction is different than warehousing, and the WSIB numbers do tell a different story. So, Is this about uh, being outside, or does it matter? Because, you know, sooner or later, uh, the construction goes inside a building. Uh, does it matter as a different protocol for outside to inside? Well, I think one advantage that we do have in construction is um, we do have space. And so... Yes, I think being outside, um, you know, potentially operating a, a backhoe or a bulldozer by yourself is certainly a lower risk activity. Um, but construction was the first sector with COVID guidelines. We do have very effective guidelines. We have very effective PPE use. Um, our ability to clean and sanitize workplaces um, was good and has been improved. Um, we've been able to implement rapid screening um, programs where we're actually testing workers before they go on site. Um, and so if we follow the procedures and protocols and best practices, we can eliminate or greatly reduce this risk. Um, it can be as simple as you know, one crew or one worker going into a unit per day. And so um, if, if, you know, when we've spent a lot of time and energy um, trying to reduce the number of people working in one area, and, and as all of the, the doctors and health professionals say, um, if we can stay apart, then COVID can't spread. So we do have that advantage over some other sectors. We remember uh, way back at the beginning uh, of all of this in the first wave, uh, many were concerned that workers will not were not following protocol. Are you convinced that workers all are are following the, the the process and the protocol that's needed? Yeah, another great question. So the data that I have shows about four hundred thousand people in construction. Um, four hundred thousand people are not following the rules, but the vast majority of them are, and so. You know, even if we we look at round numbers, let's say 95% of all construction workers are following the rules, that leaves 20,000 people who aren't. Um, And so I I don't know what percentage of workers are following the rules. I think it is the overwhelming vast majority, uh, but I I can't pretend that everybody is. And that's where COVID and COVID safety, in in my mind, is a three-prong approach. So as employers, we have to create the policies and the procedures and show leadership but we depend on and need the help of government, one through health and safety enforcement and inspectors, but we also need help from, um, from the unions, from the workers, from the Joint Health and Safety Committee. Um, when you see somebody not wearing a mask, everybody needs to say something. Um, it's the only way that we'll get, uh, you know, 100% compliance across the board. That's what, that, that was another point I was going to bring up. And, you know, you just heard about this anecdotally, but there's pressure around the site, you know, um, you know, to, to not to adhere to the protocol. Has that changed? So, like, for example, as you said, there's someone on the site without a mask, the other one speak up. Yeah, I think that has to be the approach. Um, we've worked really hard to create a culture and safety, culture of safety and construction 
especially over the last 20, 30 years. And, and that was perfect. That's the approach we need for COVID. Um, I, I, I personally believe that a lot of construction workers buy into it. Um, but construction is so big that we are a great um, example of broader society. And so some people in society get yeah. COVID and some people don't. Some people get the purpose and need for a mask. And unfortunately, some people don't. And uh, the more information, education, promotion, and the more that um, we as a group, you know, all individuals ask people to wear masks, the better. Um, if they won't wear it for themselves, wear it for, you know, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. Um, I, I don't care why you wear a mask. I just need you to wear one. Now, are, in, are inspectors following up on this stuff? Can we be confident of that? Yeah, so the the Ministry of Labor has literally started another blitz in construction um, today, and so that's excellent. I think uh, when I look at health and safety, I think I said it already, it's a three-prong approach, and so we have a role to play as employers. Workers and unions have a role, and the government has a role. And so we, we expect and desire um, clear and consistent rules that are enforced. Um, we need to take the leadership role as employers, but we also need to know and workers need to know that the rules and the policies and the procedures are going to be enforced and that if and when a, a health inspector comes on site, they're going to be looking for compliance. And if you're not in compliance, uh, you're going to get into trouble. And that's the right approach, and we welcome it. So we're thankful that the Ministry of Labor has started this blitz in construction. Andrew Pariser with us, Vice President of the Residential Construction Council of Ontario. It looks like uh, construction sites will get to remain open during uh, the next set of restrictions, whatever they are. Andrew, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. Yeah, and thank you very much for your time and uh, continue to cover the story. It's very important. Thank you. More than welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, enjoying the residue of my AstraZeneca shot early this morning. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, if I start slurring or, uh, you know, you hear my head bang on the desk, uh, you know, call Will. Uh, all right. As uh, we know, Prince Philip passed away and lots of chatter around his uh, funeral, which is coming up. Uh, tomorrow to talk more about all of this jamie samhan is with us entertainment tonight canada royal insider and with us now jamie thanks for the time hope you're doing well not bad in yourself so far so good uh i'll let you know monday <laughs> anyway <laughs> jamie big weekend uh this weekend for royal watchers obviously a sad occasion uh with prince philip's funeral but how will this funeral uh be different obviously he wanted a, a bit more of a low-keyed uh funeral anyway and you know with his situation not necessarily uh going to get the big uh, uh traditional funeral so what's different what would what would have been different with this funeral had it not happened during covid well, you're right. He did want a smaller, you know, more toned down affair. He didn't want the big state funeral that will be rewarded to the queen when she dies. Uh, however, when we say toned down, it was still looking at up to 800 guests, which have now had to go down to 30 guests alone um, just because of the COVID restrictions in the UK right now. So those 30 members are just going to be uh, members of the royal family, as well as a few of Philip's sisters and um, family members coming over from Germany who have also quarantined. And, you know, it's going to be just a really nice family affair. And unfortunately, you know, different dignitaries and representatives around the world aren't going to be able to travel there to pay their respects. But it is happening all in uh, their respective countries. Obviously, preceding all of this, the the spat between uh, Harry and William, uh, what will their roles be during this? 
So both Harry and William are going to be taking part in the funeral procession. So Prince Philip actually designed his own hearse uh, starting 18 years ago. He custom designed a Land Rover that's going to be carrying his coffin. And Harry and William will be walking behind that. Now, um, Prince Philip's oldest uh, grandchild, so Princess Anne's son, Peter Phillips, is going to be walking in between them. So they will not be side by side. Now... Is that how, how, Jamie, how significant is that? Are we making something up about that? The fact that they're not right side by side, shoulder to shoulder, there's someone in between them. Is that, um, are we making too much of that? So Peter Phillips needed somewhere to stand. He was going to be and always going to be in the procession. However, to say that things are now great between Harry and William would be taking it too far. There's definitely a lot of tensions there. Um, and having Peter in between them will definitely kind of be that dividing factor. Uh, they're going to be on their best behavior this weekend, but I would be very surprised if we don't hear something in the coming weeks about how they did not get along over the weekend. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see if there is any sort of reconciliation at this time. No? Yeah, I mean, it would be great. Harry has, he's still in quarantine, but he has spoken on the phone to different family members while he is there in the UK. And, they do want to put this all behind them and be there for the Queen and, you know, support her during this time. However, uh, it's not going to be a Band-Aid fix to their past problems that have been going on for years. Do we know at this time, Jamie, who will speak at the funeral? Um, those details are actually going to be announced later tonight. Uh, Philip did have, a, once again, a huge part in playing it. He's picked everything down to the music, uh, the different Bible verses that are going to be read. So, I believe it'll be around 5.30 Eastern time that we're going to be getting those details of exactly how it's going to play out. Uh, and I understand no military uh, uniforms at all. Everybody will be suited. How, how, how significant is that? It's a bit of a shame because Prince Philip was the head of different military commandments. He also served. So the fact that they're not going to be able to wear them, however, uh, Andrew, Prince Andrew, who is embroiled in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, um, wanted to wear his. But after stepping down, it's kind of a gray area. Should he be wearing it? And also Harry is another one who would also not be in military uniforms. So the Queen decided, you know what, instead of making this funeral about who's wearing what, we're just going to make an even playing field and everyone will be in uh, morning suits or casual attire, not casual. So it was the Queen that made this... So it was the Queen that made this call? Yes, it was. Everything comes down to her. Um, she's trying to keep as much into Philip's wishes as possible, but obviously, you know, she's had to make adjustments in this day and age. Would we expect William or Harry to speak at this funeral? I don't think we'll be hearing Harry or yeah. William speak. Uh, it's only not even, I think, an hour from start to finish when they're inside the church. So uh, it would be great and they've all paid their respects on social media, but I wouldn't get your help. Uh, any more on the queen, uh, her duties, um, uh, how, how she, how she carries on post funeral. Well, normally she's supposed to go into mourning, but she's actually already been back to work, uh, yeah. having your know, virtual appointments. So she even had one today with, uh, Justin Trudeau. So, she is right back in there, and, uh, you know, I think Charles has already supported her a lot in the past few years as she's got, you know, older in age, and I think he will just continue, and William's going to step up even more now that she doesn't have Philip, who is such a confidant to her and a support. What do you think, Jamie, we're going to be talking about after the weekend, after this is over? 
I think at first it will just be the legacy that Prince Philip left behind. Uh, then it will definitely be turning more to the gossip and the different stories that are leaked of how the relationship with the royal family is, how do they move forward to this. Uh, everyone knows that Prince Charles wants to slim down monarchy when he becomes king, and I think that's going to become even more evident in the coming months. Jamie Samhan with us, Entertainment Tonight Canada, Royal Insider, uh, this weekend, Saturday, Prince Philip's uh, funeral. Jamie, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. And for everyone, uh, they can tune into ET Canada this weekend online, and we'll have all the coverage. There you go. Uh, make sure you're watching ET tonight for more on all of this. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.